0: Well, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to Nun Talks. Uh, Today, I'm really excited to uh, welcome a guest, uh, Dr. Robin Henley-Defoe. And so excited to have her come, partly because she spoke to um, all of the staff in Westwind back in August, but also super excited because I've I've read one of her books, Calm Within the Storm, and really love that. And the topic we're going to talk about, resiliency. She is a a multi-award-winning psychology and educational instructor who specializes in resiliency, navigating stress, and change leadership, and personal wellness in the workplace. She is described as transformational, engaging, and thought-provoking. Dr. DeFoy, uh, Robin also provides keynotes, practical strategies, grounded in global research, case studies that help foster resiliency, within ourselves and others. And so that's the bio. Um, (laughs) But the reality is Robin is just a great person and has a great story. Um, And so we're going to talk today about resiliency. So uh, welcome Robin to our podcast today.
1: Well, thank you, Austin. I'm excited to be here today.
0: So I guess uh, let's just get this um, started in a conversation yeah. ar- around resiliency, and we can go anywhere you want to go with it. <laughs> um, but but what is resiliency? I mean, we hear about it a lot. Um, you're born with it. You're not born with it. You can learn resilience. But really, what is resiliency?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that question and I appreciate that we can actually put some clarity to what it is. So in my work with resiliency, what we talk about are the skill sets and the traits and the behaviors that people use to help them through difficult seasons or experiences of their lives. And also to help them overcome some adversity. So resiliency isn't just one thing. What I see is it's this constellation of different behaviors and skills and traits that people use to essentially forge their comeback or allow them to keep showing up in their lives, even in the hard parts. Awesome.
0: So we talked to teachers and we talked to Mm -hmm. our uh, support staff about resiliency and some things there. And we'll we'll get into a, a lot of those, I'm sure. But if if I'm a parent and we're coming out of a pandemic and we're coming about out of other any other situation where we face adversity, what do I what are some things I can do to build resiliency in my my kids and, and help them be resilient and maybe even in myself and, and looking forward? Yeah.
1: Yeah, Austin, you're asking a great question. So one of the things we talk about is first that resiliency can be taught. We can show people, help them cultivate those behaviors and skills that are going to help them, again, get through or show up in hard times. And the way we talk about it is at first as grownups and supporters um, and as parents, what we can do is we can model resiliency. And what we mean by that is that we show them that we are able to kind of dust ourselves off. We get back up. We understand that mistakes and setbacks are actually part of a normal life. You know, so often I think we have this idea that failure is fatal and like, oh, if I drop the ball or if I make a mistake, that's the end of it. But the reality is it's not as permanent as sometimes we suggest as parents and supporters and grownups. So it's just that idea that like, hey, even adults make mistakes. And it's this idea. And I talk to my own teenagers about this often is that mistakes, those are inevitable the thing that's really important is that we actually learn from our mistakes. So we don't want to waste a mistake is something I say to my kids all the time. We don't want to waste it. So if something goes off the rails or something doesn't work out, what did we need to learn or what can we learn from this? So that way we can show up perhaps differently next time. So I think we can model it first and foremost. I also think we can, again, hold space that we're not always supposed to get it right all the time, that not everything is meant to be perfect and smooth sailing, that part of of our lived experience is the ebbs and flows that's part of our nature um so normalizing the fact that there's ups and downs and and that I think is a starting point for families
0: awesome so um i know you talked about the the five universal truths of resiliency yes. and i just wondered if you would take some time and walk through those with us um in that area of that that same concept of mistakes are good bounce back from yeah work. Yes. Them. We all have these every day. And and so these five universal truths fit mm-hmm. into that that principle and totally want to talk with us through those five universal truths.
1: Yeah. And just as just a wee little bit backstep. So when I first started studying human resiliency, and I've been teaching now at the university for 18 years, at the time, everyone was talking about grit and toughness and resilient people were just like, pull up your bootstraps. And they were just like a different type of person who could weather bad things. So when I went out into the field and starting to do research and started to talk to these like amazing resilient people all around the world that were evidently resilient, like anyone would be able to point out that these people had managed through very hard seasons of their lives or experiences. And I would ask them, Austin, to tell me about how gritty you are, how strong you are, how resourceful you are. And so many of them shared with me that they didn't think they were very resilient. They didn't think of themselves as very tough or very capable. So then we got into this place and that kind of inquiry about, okay, well then, gosh, how did you get through it? Like, if you don't want to call yourself resilient, that's fine. But like, tell me, like, I want to know, how did you manage what you went through? And from there, that's where we actually started to have these like ideas of the five pillars that were hatched through the similarities in people's stories. So we heard these common things. And the first one, I'll tell you all about them quickly. um The first one was a sense of belonging. People talked about the the fact that they could have a home team, that they had people in their corner that they trusted, that they knew that they were people that they could reach out to if they were having like a bad day or something didn't go right. But they also had people in their corner that they could reach out to tell them when something was really great and they could celebrate with people. So that community that we know can rally around a person. And one of the findings that I actually found a lot of comfort in as a scholar, but also as a parent was we saw in the research that it was one caring, consistent adult could actually make a difference in a child's life. One caring, consistent adult. And sometimes if we find ourselves in situations, if we're, for example, a single parent, or perhaps we're concerned that, you know, oh, gosh, our child has experienced some adversity and we don't know how they're going to turn out. Just knowing that that one caring person, it could be a teacher, a grandparent, an aunt, a coach, um, they're able to help hold children together to help them get through difficult times and, you know, basically unscathed, which is encouraging. So belonging is number one.
0: The can second I, we can talk I yeah, please jump
1: part? in. Yeah, of course. I love you too.
0: No, I really think that that one is one that we we all as adults especially need to think about is who, yes. who am I the champion for? Who am I? Yeah that belonging person too and and yeah. I, I when you talk to those teachers, I kind of went through a mental list of probably mm-hmm. like a, a grade four teacher, a grade yeah. six teacher, a coach, um a grade 12 teacher that I had and even at university like who is that one champion for me and and it really stood out to me that there are those impactful people at different points in my life that just made that sense of belonging. So yeah. then it built me. I think I'm pretty resilient. So it built me yeah. into a resilient people, a person, but because those five or six people all had an impact at certain points yeah. along my path. So I, that one is really stands out to me the importance of that we play as adults in yes. young people's lives and helping them become resilient
1: absolutely and i think i often get asked you know like again what what can we do as grown-ups and adults and supporters and you know i i love the the quote by uh, tony morrison she writes when a child walks into a room the goal is that could your face light up when you see them. And I love that just that idea about how that could change a child's trajectory. So even if you're just, you know, in that role of, for example, like a a teacher or even a crossing guard and you see that child. And when you see their that child and you know you have that capacity to just like brighten up and be happy and genuinely excited to see them, that makes them feel seen. And when a child feels seen and part of community, that's when they start to feel that sense of safety, that they They know that people know them, people recognize them. That helps build and strengthen that bond, that they're safe and that they can figure things out and they have people in their corner that care about them. So again, even just that kind of simple principle, could your face light up when a child walks into the room? Because that could be the differentiator of changing the course of a child's day and even their childhood.
0: Awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. So sorry to interrupt on number two. No, I love it.
1: Interrupt (laughs) away. It's my favorite. Um, The second we talk about is, is perspective. And what's really interesting, and we've been so fortunate to learn so much in our research, but also from our colleagues in the Indigenous communities about really understanding perspective as this alignment between our head and our heart. So it's not just intellect. It's not problem solving and just attitude there is also that component of understanding our feelings and a place for our feelings in that kind of place of alignment with our thoughts. And so one of the things that we learned about resilient people is that they work with their thoughts, of course, and they work with their feelings and they see them as value adds. And so just how they see the world and how they feel in the world, they take a different approach. So an example I can share with you about perspective. And uh, this was, I was just working with a group of educators And one of the areas us we were talking about was a lot of educators, for example, wondering whether or not they want to continue in the field. Like they're just feeling really tired and just a little bit wobbly. And one of the pieces that we identified with this group of teachers is that many of them talked about that, you know what, they can't just walk away from this job. They can't just quit this job because they can't quit community. And what was so interesting is it's like, you can quit a job, yeah, but it's really hard to quit community. It's really hard to not be in that child's or those young adults' lives anymore. So even just that perspective of the fact that this isn't just about me, that there's a bigger piece of this and them feeling, the teacher's feeling as though they want somebody who cares deeply about their role, about their work, to be able to be in that classroom or be in that support role in that school community, that's perspective perspective right That's that perspective that we're talking about
0: there was a, a line I think you shared with teachers uh, when you came to Westwind and it was I might get it not just right but uh making what matters most uh, matter most uh, matter most yeah and I thought that was really important because you know uh, when we're going through those difficult situations and we're like, I can't do this anymore and we're we're feeling like we're not resilient, Um, The the principle of taking what matters most to me and make it matter most uh, makes me stronger and and a better person and become more resilient. So I I love that line in in the area of perspective.
1: Yeah, 100% for sure. Now, the third one we talk about, I can tell you about is this idea about acceptance. And what we learned about resilient people is that they've essentially figured out how to work with things that are within and outside of their control. And what I mean by that is even just focusing, again, on what we have versus what we don't have, what we can do versus what we can't do, just that understanding that there's going to be parts that we don't like, and there's going to be things that don't always go our way, but learning how to cope exist with some of those pieces and you know I can share with you as a as a mom of three teenagers who are all very high competitive athletes we've spent a lot of time working on the skill of learning how to lose like you have to actually learn how to not have things always go your way what does what does that look like how do you actually be a true competitor and like that idea that you know what bad reffing, it's part of sports, right? Like where sometimes, for example, you can get so fixated on the things that are outside of your control. So for example, in this particular case, I was you know, about reffing, right? There's always going to be bad roughing. That's part of sports. And instead of putting all our energy, being frustrated about things outside of our control, it's recognizing, okay, what's within my control? How do I show up? How do I meet this challenge in a way that works within the variables that I actually can have impact on? And again, we often talk about the fact that You know, there's certain things when we talk about acceptance that it's not um, it's not just something that you do it once and then you have acceptance. It's a daily decision. And the example we use there, Austin, often in their work is around grief. So, for example, you never get over things. Right. I don't believe at all that you ever get over grief or loss. But what we learn how to do is walk with grief. We just learn ways of navigating our lives with part of that as our story, and we make room for it. And it's not whether we like it or not. It's just the reality for some of us is we got to figure this out. And when we figure it out, what it allows us to do is to actually show up the best that we can on any given day.
0: Awesome. I I loved in that acceptance piece, you, you talked a little bit about, you know, what's my next right move or my next decision in acceptance. So, you know, persist in it. Yeah. pivot and change direction or punt yeah. and move on.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, I, I also loved what you talked about with your kids. So I, I coached with a, a lady for a while in, in um, basketball in, in the US actually. And she always really emphasized to the teams that we coached, um, win the same as you lose. Yeah. And so um, winning, winning is something we do and losing something we do. No one should yeah. really know the difference by our the way we treat other people yeah. or the way we treat our opponents. It's just, sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. We accept mm-hmm. both the same way. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: I appreciated that very much.
1: That's great wisdom right there for sure.
0: All right. Moving on. I think hope. Okay. That's when we talked about.
1: Yeah, number four is hope. And this is actually one that, my goodness, I feel like we all need such a dose of this right now. And the, the practice of recognizing the importance of living hope-filled and leaning into things and trusting, really trusting the process that you know better days are ahead. And I think so often, and I wrote about this actually in my book, um, when I experienced um, a, a bout of depression, I've experienced different mental health challenges throughout my life. The way that the only way that I could explain to somebody what depression felt like for me, Austin, was it was as if that little kind of pilot light in my heart had gone out. I just couldn't hold joy anymore. I couldn't hold a sense of peace. I couldn't hold a sense of calm. Like it was as literally like, I just kind of like everything just went dark. And what was interesting, part of my recovery through that season of depression was essentially learning to get my joy back, learning how to actually hold hope again, and actually believing in my bones that better days were ahead, that we were going to be able to get through this. And I often am asked, how do we grow hope? How do we cultivate it when there's so much negativity? and noise and like real world problems all around us. Like how do we even hold space for things to work out? And I think where that comes in is is that idea of our relationships. It's like leaning into the things that are within our control I also think that it's around sharing good news stories. It's talking about things that are right in the world, talking about those little micro moments where you see that light. And hopefully, when some people are feeling pretty vulnerable or feeling pretty discouraged, hearing that right story at the right time can actually kind of get that light, can get through that crack and start to warm up people's idea to being hope filled again. Um, because hope matters. It's a strategy to be able to hold confidence that we're going to. Be able to weather what we're going through.
0: So, can we talk about that one just a little bit more? Of course, we can. Yes, <laughs> I just this I, is I, your I, show.
1: I, you can talk no, about whatever no, you uh, like. <laughs> I
0: really, I, I think that one is so important. That idea yeah. of being hope filled because mm-hmm. we we all go through. You know, if you turn on the TV in the morning yeah. and watch the news, or you stream your social media, whatever that is. Um, and, and there's so much distrust. Uh, yes. I'll, I'll even say hatred and all of that yeah. out there that I think a, a lot of us kind of walk around and I don't know how else to describe it in this lack of hope zombie stage. Almost. Yeah. And so um, I wonder if there's like, if you share some more strategies around that hope field, cause I'm a believer in it. I, yes. I feel like at our, our administrative meetings, I always try and, and bring some kind of um, hope story or feel good story or whatever that is. But if if I am a person that is struggling with that pilot light going out, mm-hmm. what, what would be three or four things you would say, this is something you need to do every day in yeah. order to fill your life with hope?
1: Yeah, I love that question. Um, and first, I think, uh, you know, every there's there's always going to be different things that work for different people in okay. different ways. But some of the kind of general practices that we've seen, I feel very, very strongly, and I encourage the people I work with to really, really safeguard your your mornings, the first few minutes when you wake up in the day, because that's when you have, um, you kind of have the almost like the best fighting chance in such an unwell world to set yourself on the right track. And so, you know, so often when we wake up, we're already in like a scarcity mindset, Austin, we're already saying like, oh, I didn't get enough sleep last night. I don't have enough time to get all my things done. And then we pick up a phone and we scroll through and we see all the things that are wrong with the world. Like we're just putting ourselves already kind of in that negative. So my first invitation would be to like, as soon as you wake up in the morning to like protect that time and protect what information you're taking in there's nothing that needs to be addressed on your telephone in the first few minutes right so even just kind of waking up you know thinking you know i always encourage people like the, as soon as i have consciousness in the morning the first thing i say is thank you right as soon as as soon as my brain registers that i'm awake i've trained it to just say thank you like and that starts the day that each day is a gift it's the present It's a gift and I'm here and I only get this day once in my life. So I think, again, what we do that first few minutes in the morning, it makes a big difference. And we can build on that morning routine. We can build on it by you know, going for a walk, maybe doing some meditation, prayer, journaling, whatever it is, just to really solidify that this is how I want to show up in my day. And almost it's like you're kind of protecting yourself from the outside world, but in a way that you're still going to be open to the world and to be of service. So I think, our mornings are a starting point. The second one that I talk about is that when we're feeling like emotionally depleted, it's harder to hold hope. So this is where like our sleep actually matters, right? And I often talk about the the science of sleep with one of my very dear colleagues, Dr. Greg, and I. He shared with me such I thought useful tips. Because I know that if I'm tired, everything feels worse, right? And especially it's harder to hold hope. And Dr. Greg shared with me that if you're feeling tired, let's say as the day progresses, that you either want to have like, you know, a like a 20 minute nap, like a little power nap, or you want to have 90 minutes. And what's so interesting is Dr. Greg explained that that is in rhythm with our sleep cycles. So if you have a 20 minute little nap, you know what, you're going to wake up and maybe you're going to feel a little bit better, right? Like you're just going to feel a little bit refreshed. Or if you take that 90 minute nap, you're going to wake up feeling better and you're going to feel refreshed. But so many of us, we take like maybe 35 minutes, maybe five Five minutes, right? So, even just that idea of rest and recovery, you know, knowing that our brains and our bodies do better with either a nap, a short one, or that 90 minute nap, that actually makes a big difference. So, that sleep is, I think, really important for hope, which sometimes I don't think we think about sleep and hope as being related. The other one that I can share you about is is just being really mindful of, again, what we're taking in. One of the things that I marvel about is how so many of us, for example, like after a really busy day, it's like, oh, I need to unwind. I need to rest. So I'm going to watch some like true crime shows or like violent TV programs to rest. (laughs) It's like, my goodness. Now, as a side little note there, Austin, I'll share with you. There's a reason why many of us find true crime or crime shows actually really satisfying at nighttime. And that's because they follow a very predictable trajectory. There is a problem. It gets a little bit complicated, but then it gets solved and everything gets tied up 42 minutes later. So we actually like the patterns of shows like CSI and, you know, even Chicago Fire and all those kinds of shows that we watch to kind of relax and unwind. So my invitation on that one is just being mindful of like what things we're taking in during the day. Because if we're relaxing with crime shows all the time, I think that's heavy on our hearts, even though it's comforting.
0: I know for myself, like, uh, in this whole last, let's say three years now, I'm really trying to be hope filled. I've changed my own routine to what I even listen to as I travel in yeah. my car, uh, and lots of positive podcast yeah. actually I'm a huge fan of, of Greg Wells and yes we I listen to mostly all of his podcasts and then yeah. sure our staff in Westwind is sick of me because I send them out I'm like this is a great one listen to this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it matters it, yeah so uh no I appreciate that very much but just that mm-hmm. idea of filling your day with things that are hopeful and avoiding yeah. the the con- the conversation that isn't hopeful so I appreciate- Yes all right Um, I think the next one's Noble Pursuit, which is my, there you
1: go. There you go. Yeah. And so we, we talk about the, uh, of the fifth of the final of the pillars is that idea about using, and that kind of ties in a wee bit with humor that leads us to that overarching noble pursuit is the power of humor. So what we've learned about resilient people is that they like lean into even having these little micro moments, Austin, of things, even in hard seasons, they can still just find moments of merriment, just those little pockets, those little windows to still have that little bit of lightheartedness. And what we've learned by using humor, it actually has a biological purpose. So we talk about like, when you laugh, your body releases a natural tranquilizer. So for that moment, you can't feel pain, which again, it doesn't solve your problems, but humor and joy and laughter, all of those things just help carry the load. So what we see is that piece of like, just not taking ourselves so seriously all the time or ensuring that we recognize that play is part of active recovery. And so often people feel as though play is like nonsensical or it doesn't have any value add, but rest and recovery and joy, all of those things help someone overall to be resilient. And how we braid all five of those together is that piece that you said about the noble pursuit. When we're on a path that we feel in our hearts, that's like, hey, this is what I want to be doing or ought to be doing right now. We know that that makes a significant difference on people being able to weather difficult days and setbacks and challenges.
0: Well, i just love that and i love the the humor piece built into there because yes. i'll give you my example so yesterday i'm driving to work and we had a pretty good snowstorm here and and i come around a corner i don't think i was going too fast but obviously <laughs> i was and i slid into the um metal or the cement divider in the road and oh, i rod on my car and you know all those funny all those things there's nothing I can do about it, but I did yeah. have to tell my my wife, I should just stay home. We probably would have more money than if I go yeah. to work. I bust my car and all those kind of things. But you do, you just have to, I mean, there's challenges in life and you really do have to find the humor in them.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and what we've learned is that it's like, it's almost like a a bit of the more that we can do it. It's not making light of situations. It's not minimizing the impact, but what it does is it's like, you're going to have to carry this thing. We might as well find the most effective way to carry it. Right. So by bringing in just that little bit of lightheartedness and being able to, you know, not ruminate and get stuck on it. Cause I think so often we get so stuck in some of these things that have happened to us or, or, you know, we pick up those offenses, for example, during our work. Workday, and we hold on to it and tell everybody about it when we get home and think about it all the time. Like, that's not going to serve anyone well at the end of the day. So, again, it's having that little bit of nimbleness to roll with things
0: the the next piece that i'd like to spend just a few minutes on in our conversation is the idea of um uh, being safe psychologically yeah. psychological yeah. safety and and just where that fits into our day-to-day lives and 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 how we as adults uh, whether it's uh, educators or parents can help uh, uh, young people become resilient yeah. uh, by helping them feel safe in in that area uh, around um mental health and and mm-hmm and being psychologically safe. What are are your thoughts in that area?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Again, and so just so we're all on the same page, psychological safety is is kind of this idea that um, we're able to kind of take risks in the world. We're able to try. We're able to go out into the big world, and we know that that it's 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 a safe place to do it emotionally. So it's not just our physical safety, but it's even that kind of idea, you know, about that inner dialogue we have with ourself. Like when you make a mistake, what do you say to yourself? Right? Do you name call? Your yourself? Do you kind of kick yourself or, or do you meet it with like understanding and compassion? Um, Because the reality is that, and I tell this to parents and educators all the time, which I think is, I remember feeling as if this was such a big, like aha moment in my own learning is when we discovered very much that the way a parent, a teacher or a caregiver speaks to a child will become their inner dialogue right? So the way you talk to a child, that's what will become their inner dialogue. And so the first place of psychological safety actually happens within our own thoughts, the way we talk to ourselves, the way we see ourselves in the world. And we want to make sure that those Those thoughts have a safe place to land. And that doesn't mean that we're, you know, we're not, uh, we're not, we don't have any room for growth. That doesn't mean we have to get everything right. It doesn't mean, you know, we we're soft. What it means is that we recognize that there's limitations for sure of what we can do, but that doesn't make me unworthy of love. It doesn't make me not uh, deserving of love. So it's creating a bit of a barrier between mistakes, um, setbacks, challenges, and stressors. And that psychological safety serves as that little bit of a shield or a wall that protects it from then becoming personal. So an example is like, oh, I noticed I made a mistake versus I'm a mistake right? It's not internalizing that piece. So that's kind of where psych safety starts. It starts in our head. So what we can do to, uh, to support that growing for our children and the students is understanding that how we talk about mistakes, how we talk about setbacks is going to be, um, a big indicator of how people are going to start to feel psychologically safe.
0: I actually, I, I love what you said about how we talk. So my, my wife, um, She's not a psychologist, but she should be one. But she always says, <laughs> I like it if we if we um, if you tell a child they're an idiot, they'll become an idiot. Mm-hmm. and and so you know, she's like she's been super great about what she's taught our our daughters. We have four of them and and what they how they value themselves. and mm-hmm. um, I think one year for Christmas she gave everybody a mug that said, I'm a strong, independent woman. And um, there's probably some other things on there, too. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's kind of the idea that what we what we teach them, what we tell them, um, some people might underestimate the the positive language that's in a home or the poster on the wall or the sticky note on the mirror. but, yeah. but it really does create this is how I I view myself. This is who I am yes. internally. And those messages yeah. are, are critical and, and super important.
1: Yeah. And, you know, again, little, you know, little things that we talk about. I remember, you know, when uh, as I, I have the three, so I have boy, girl, boy. And I remember, you know, with Ava our, at the time and she'd be like a little toddler and we'd be kind of going through and, you know, people would say, you know, oh, she's so pretty. Like, look how pretty that little girl is. And I remember one time Hunter is two years older than his sister. He like stopped at this stranger who'd commented on how cute Ava was at the park. And he did this eye roll, Austin. He's like, yeah. And my mom's going to tell you that she's also smart and she's good at problem solving and she's really good at coloring. And it was just this like, almost like this like total, like, oh, here we go again. Because it's so important that, that what we're saying about children, because they're always listening. And I often tell families and parents, what I love to do is encourage them to like, have your kids almost catch you talking good about them, right? And I'm not, not in an artificial way, not in like, you know, sparkles and rainbows and unicorns, but like when they did something good, like having a parent share that with some, like another adult You know, even like a grandparent or an aunt, even something like, hey, you know what? I was so impressed. Jackson took in the recycling boxes after school and nobody asked him. Like, gosh, I just appreciate how he's really a contributor at home. And like, so yeah, we can say thanks, Jackson, for bringing in the recycling boxes. But it feels pretty darn good when somebody recognizes it in a different way. And what we're doing there is we're reinforcing the behavior. But we're also talking about how what he's doing is contributing to the family because we all have work to do. We all have to contribute.
0: That's right. That's awesome. Now, we could go on for hours talk, <laughs> talking about this and and its its role in school, its role yeah. in home, role in community, and how we, we all play a role in building um, resilient individuals. I'm going to pivot for just a minute. Sure. And I know you've done some work with high-performance athletes. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd like to just have you share a little bit about that work and, and what that's like. And and maybe some things that you would tell, um, and not necessarily even high performing athletes, but, uh, just, uh, athletes who come up and show every day for practice and work hard. Yeah. And what are some thoughts you would share there around yeah, I'd uh, love to. resilience or around yeah. sports yeah. psychology or whatever I'd like to of course. And have you share some yeah. of your work there and, and maybe some of the things you've done there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I actually did early in my program was I at the time I was uh, focusing a lot on just like trauma, grief, really heaviness. And one of the things that I recognized within myself is that when I was only in that really dark, heavy place, I recognized that I was carrying it home with me. So what I started to do was actually do a little bit of work on the other end of the continuum where we're working with high performers a bit more proactively about learning about resiliency and wellness, just to really balance how my day was unfolding. So yes, I still support persons who are at risk and are having a hard time. And I also get to support people who are really exploring how to excel and level up in their particular field. And some of the things that I can share with you, and I've had the amazing opportunities to work with some really amazing coaches and teams and organizations around the world. And the piece that I really find right now is that there's top talent right skill sets and students and young athletes that are really excelling there's now such a little bit of difference between like the top dozen and what i mean by that is before you you would get some people that would just be like miles ahead of everybody else right now we're just seeing that everyone has leveled up everyone in terms of the skills and competencies Austin like they're doing a really good job at developing these young athletes so if you're looking for your edge or you're looking for a way to stand out, it's actually the human side of the sport that is actually going to help young athletes stick out to coaches and to recruiters. So what we're talking about isn't necessarily talent and skill. What we're talking about is being the hardest worker in the room. We talk about this idea of being so Positive as a contributor to a team success, that you're hard to cut, right? To that point where we want to make it hard for the coach to even imagine having to cut you from a roster because you're that overall person who's bringing good energy, who's bringing good focus, who really rallies around the team. So, those are those human sides of the sport that I think is really going to be the differentiator. That person who comes to practice ready, that person who, again, knows how to lose, that person that can hold that positive morale, all of those things are within the realm of what an athlete can control. And those are the things that are going to differentiate top performers. And I can share with you just really briefly, I was working with a group years ago, and it was interesting because the coaching staff asked me if I could help them decide between two players that one of them was going to represent the country. So there were two athletes that were like, neck and neck in terms of talent and their skill sets. And they said like, how do you even pick no which pressure. one? No pressure yeah. on you. <laughs> no, I know, And they're like, how do we even pick this? And I remember standing with the coach and we were in the, like the lobby of the sport venue. And it was interesting because those athletes, they would said, okay, you know, gentlemen, go kind of go for a break and we'll call you back. And I remember the first athlete like walked out the door, no big deal. The second athlete walked out of the door and then he paused and he saw that there was this like mom with the stroller and the suit like um like a like a change bag and she was trying to hold the door but the automatic door wasn't working. And the second athlete actually stopped and he went back and he held the first door, let her go through, and he held the second door and let her go through. And then he like, you know, said, you're welcome and just carried on out to the parking lot. And I turned to the coach and I'm like, who would you want on your team? Do you want somebody who's going to hold the door for someone? And he said, I can't believe that this national birth, that like this birth to be on this national team just came down to somebody holding a door. Yeah. And I'm like, some days it does. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Okay. I really appreciate your time, but I do have to ask one more question. I'm in. All right. I, I really want you to share about doing hard things sure and thing. your, your, your own story around hard things that, mm-hmm. um, I, I heard your story once, um, how I even got uh, connected to you was, uh, It was reposted probably on Facebook or something. I'm not really a social media guy, and it it had a huge impact on me personally, Robin, about my own hard things and how I can overcome them. And I I, I think that's one of those stories where if we we hear someone else's hard thing story related to how they overcame that and built resilience and and went on to live the life you've lived, Mm -hmm. has an impact on others. So if you're okay to. Take yes. some time and share that. Um, I yeah. would love to uh, hear you say that on uh, that piece on how I can do hard things.
1: Absolutely. So, uh, and this very much is the origin story as to why I even study human resiliency. And for me, it actually stemmed, um, you know, in my early childhood, I I was very fortunate uh, because I had a mother who always told me that I could do hard things. So when I would face a challenge or something that was hard, my mom would always say, well, don't worry, it's okay, because Robin does hard things, you'll figure it out. So she had this like steadfast confidence in me that I could figure things out and she trusted that i could figure things out and as i often share when i was little i didn't understand what it meant when mom would say like robin can do hard things but when i was a teenager um my mom's words that i could do hard things actually saved my life and i'll share with pretty radical kinder when i was a teenager i was i was i was a mess i was in a very very dark season Um, I shared that I dropped out of high school in grade 10. Um, I unfortunately had a very hard time with school, um, undiagnosed learning disabilities. And in my ADHD at the time, I don't think people knew what to do with me. And school was always a struggle. And the teachers actually, I had a particular teacher who commented that uh, they thought I should kind of go in a level below trades or basic because they said school wasn't for me and um, that there wasn't a place for me in school. And that was a really significant impact on me because when school got really hard in high school, I didn't feel like I belonged there. That wasn't for me. So I ended up dropping out. And at that same time, my mental health really started to erode and I started to develop a lot of, um, uh, maladaptive behaviors, whether addiction or self-harm. And at the time it was, they were just, I was just trying to cope, right? I wasn't trying to be a difficult teenager. I wasn't rebelling. I wasn't trying to make my parents' life difficult. Um, I was, I was just doing my best to cope all the wrong ways. And, uh, I was very fortunate, though, because my parents really stood by me despite my challenges. And they had one child who was soaring and another child that was self-destructing. And I know other families can relate to that, where you you know, you know, have these two kids growing up in the same house, same family, same community, all the things, and one just seems to get off course. One loses her way. And that was me. And uh, what my parents did, again, was pretty radical in the sense that eventually they decided that we were going to move. They said to me that I needed a fresh start, that I needed a second chance. And my family moved to a small community. We were living in Toronto in a busier city and we moved to a small community and I started to get better. And I started to commit to a recovery and I ended up getting my driver's license and I had it for just about a week. And I was living up North and I was driving home late at night and I was on a deserted road and a snowstorm rolled in quickly. And I ended up, Austin, losing control of my car. I went off the road. I went down an embankment. And my vehicle crashed through the ice. And my vehicle sank in the Atonabee River. And within moments, my car was completely submerged. And I remember this freezing cold water come rushing in through my floorboards. And I was drowning in my car. And one of the really really amazing things in that moment is I recognized that I wasn't scared. I wasn't feeling afraid at all. What I was feeling was angry. And I was so angry when I realized I couldn't protect my mom from what was about to happen. And when I started to think about my mom, oh, it was like this deep, old emotional echo. And I was so overwhelmed with this feeling of my mom would have told me that I could do hard things. And I wanted to at least try to find a way to see if I could figure my way out of that situation. So I was able to wiggle out of the seatbelt and get through the car window. I was able to swim out the window of the car. And I didn't actually know which way was up or down when I got outside of the car. Um, They estimate the vehicle was between 15 and 20 feet underwater at that time. And in that moment, the only idea I had to get my bearings was to exhale because I knew my bubbles would rise in the water. And I recall swimming as hard as I could after those little bubbles, again, with winter boots on and a big winter coat and jeans. And I thought I was going to make it in that moment. But then all of a sudden, like something hit my face, smashed my face in And I realized it was my face hitting the ice. And in that moment, it was just a scramble, Austin, whatever I could do to get through. And I I worked my way to the middle of the channel where the ice was thinner. And I was able to get onto the edge. And I was holding onto that edge in the middle of the night on a deserted road in a snowstorm. And that night, there was a gentleman by the name of Joseph. His name was Joseph Todd. He was just a random guy in his thirties driving home from shift work. And Joseph just happened to see my car tracks in the snow. And he just happened to drive all along the side of that road to see if he could see anyone. And sure enough, he pulled over his pickup truck. He saw me out there on the ice and Joseph grabbed wood and a chain from his pickup truck and used the wood to support his body weight. And he crawled out onto that ice, slid out the chain and he wrapped it around me and uh, dragged me to shore. And uh, Joseph Todd was awarded the Governor General's Award for Bravery for risking his life to save a stranger. And I recall Austin waking up a wee while later in the hospital, and my mom was there. She had asked me how I got myself out of that situation. And everyone was really curious how I survived it. And I reflected to my mom that it was very much because she told me that I could do hard things. And uh, she did lean in though after and tell me that um, that wasn't really what they had in mind when they told me that I could do hard things growing up, but she was glad it worked in my favor. And uh, and as I said, I I share that story very much because it was the origin story as to why I understand resiliency, but it was also the part that I would just always want to kind of add to the end of that is this idea that recoveries are never linear. So yes, I did have this kind of catastrophic event happen at 16, but it took a long time to rebuild that future, to build towards that future. And it was because of my parents' support, my faith, my school communities, Uh, a lot of people had a hand in my recovery. And I'm very grateful for how it all ended up working out, but also to just that, um, that better days were ahead. And that was a really big turning point in my life.
0: Awesome. I love your last line right there. That better yeah. days are ahead. Yeah. And, uh, we have to keep that in, in mind in all we do. I, I just, uh, even that story, we could just talk about pieces of that story for a long time, but I just made some notes from it that I think fit our conversation today. Um, I, I hope in a way that we can all be a, a Joseph Todd and, and be yeah. a lifesaver for somebody. And that fits back to that piece around belonging and, and, uh, lighting up for somebody, um, having our kids hear us say something positive about them to another adult. Um, and that we really all, we can all do hard things. It's, it's, it's in us. And, uh, and then those skills around resiliency that we, that we talked about are are so important. So I really appreciate you sharing that. And, and most of all, I really appreciate time. I know you're very busy, uh, to the to the audience that will listen she's just moved into a new home and hooked up, <laughs> the, hooked up the internet two minutes before we started yes. the Zoom meeting um, but to to take an hour and spend with us i i, I really appreciate that and so um um i i guess uh, any last closing thoughts that you want to share with us around resiliency or hard things or psychological safety or any anything that you just want to end our, our show with uh, as far as a thought today, hey, Robin.
1: There you go. So what I feel really compelled in my heart to say is first and foremost, uh, your community. Um, thank you for welcoming me in August. It was a pleasure. It was a highlight for me to be able to share time in your community in August. So for first, I want to say thank you for that. And and the second, my my gentle invitation is just to kind of unapologetically take care of ourselves. And I know that some uh, for us, it feels selfish to look after our needs. However, I just think that right now we need to be practicing compassion and empathy for ourselves so then it can flow freely to others and then we can start sharing with others from our overflow versus trying to share from others from a place of depletion so taking the time for yourself it's not selfish it's science and unapologetically do you whatever you need to do to feel better and it was interesting even i was talking to a colleague and i'm like you know even if it's like go buy fruit loops and have fruit loops for breakfast tomorrow morning because you're a grown ass adult and if you want fruit loops go have fruit loops like find any little micro behavior that you can do unapologetically to take care of yourself because you matter and your health matters and your wellness matters. So I hope that would be just a gentle invitation and a wee bit of a call to action to unapologetically do something for yourself to make yourself feel good because you're worth it.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Now I am going to put a plug in. Robin does have a a number of books. She has a a Ted talk Mm -hmm. and uh, I, uh, um, recommend um, listening to those and and I will say this about Robin from from my interactions with her she's genuine and she cares and she's um, my daughter Lucy actually introduced her um, Mm -hmm. as the keynote speaker and a few weeks later in an email Robin asked me how Lucy was doing so um, the thoughts and and the work of uh, Dr. Robin Defoe is is who she is. So I really appreciate uh, who you are and what you bring to our community. and, And thank you so much for coming on our show today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Take good care. And I hope we can do this again someday soon.